Welcome to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we bring in entrepreneurs who have created online businesses and improved their lifestyles. Here's your host, Rohit Malhotra. Hi everyone, this is Rohit from Life Self Mastery and today I'm excited to have Jordan Oliver, who is a co-founder and CEO at Kispay, uh, which is a digital platform that allows users to purchase goods on installment base. Kispay is focused uh, on Pakistan uh, market uh, and offers 0% interest financial services. Jordan uh, is a graduate from University of uh, North Texas in 2015. Uh, welcome to the show, Jordan. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Awesome. So, uh, you know, you, you have a very interesting journey. You, 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 uh, you were born and brought up in US and you went to Pakistan. What made you start Kispay and, and why Pakistan of all the, all the countries? Yeah, I mean, so when you look at kind of my background, it's all fintech. So I, you know, was at Klarna, Charge After. Um, I was, uh, before that, I was doing software services and consulting for um, for a software house uh, and, um, you know, was essentially building fintech from the ground up. So I had a really technical understanding of what the issue of acquiring um, and network switching, uh, switching was all about. When I came, I came to Pakistan to uh, visit a friend. I uh, made a soft, I made a small investment into a software house there. And when I was there, I didn't realize how big the population was. Um, and when we started off, it was really interesting because um, I saw this massive market and no one doing anything. Um, because it's very difficult to do business in emerging markets, uh, especially as a foreigner. I didn't really have any connections there, uh, so I literally just started raising money, uh, started cold calling merchants. Um, it's really cool, like having dinner and, and, and meals with um, some of the executives that I was cold calling, you know, a year ago. Um, and now it's like, you know, they're one of our biggest customers, right? So it's kind of cool, like, listen to that transition happen. But I just saw a big opportunity and my view was like, I could do it better, right? Um, than, what the, than what the banks were. And, you know, we started off as a buy now pay later company, and but our vision was never buy now pay later only, right? Uh, even looking at our very, I was looking back through my very first pitch deck that we had to investors in the very beginning, and even then we talked about you know acquiring. We talked about uh, which is like payment processing. We talked about doing um, a wallet. We talked about doing banking, right? So the vision was always to build a uh, a platform for businesses to work on and for us to help facilitate these transactions. Um, we went with buy now, pay later specifically because it's a market that went very hot. Uh, we, I knew it really well inside and out. I um, understood what it took to, to, to acquire new merchants. And so that's what we started with. Um, and about six months in, you know, we were, we were, we were processing 20% of all card volume, you know, uh, you know, easily 20% of all card volume for our, for our target markets. We actually had closer to 70% of our TAM. Um, but we are processing for the entire country. We're processing double digits percentages of the entire card processing volume in the country, um, which is kind of crazy. And when you hit that at six months, I just didn't think we'd build a platform this quickly. So we we iterated. We tried to understand what was the next step. Was it uh, was it banking? Was it B two B buy now pay later? Or was it uh, you know a wallet? What what was that next step? And what we determined was, is that we built all this great infrastructure, um, SMS smart routing for OTPs. We built out, um, helped one of the banks build the first ever payments payout systems. And so we have this great infrastructure that we built that 
we wanted to extend this to all the other payment methods. So we said, let's do one-click checkout. Um, one-click checkout is very much as a consumer merchant-facing term. Uh, it's not really what it's all about. Um, what it is, the one-click checkout is really a container for a suite of really amazing uh, e-commerce tools and payment tools uh, that is essentially a data switch for all the payment methods to work within. So think of, think of it as a platform. Um, and so our idea is using phone number as an identity layer. And underneath that identity layer, you have invoicing, A-B testing, uh, financing, cash on delivery, BNPL, crypto, uh, wallets, really everything you can think of, all utilizing this, this massive network. And uh, what we found was uh, when, we, when we launched this, that there was a amazing natural fit for the U.S. market. And so we tested it out with a few merchants in the U.S. and there was immediate traction. Uh, we, people were saying, yes, I want this, send me the contract, you know, how do I integrate? And, you know, now we are, uh, we launched into the U.S., which is, was a very big shock to the market, right? Um, everyone's like, oh, they're pulling out of Pakistan. They, what's happening? It's like, no, like it, it was really an extension of this new platform was a piece of software, right? That allowed retailers, allowed fintech, uh, that allowed payment companies to really um, have higher adoption rates and allow merchants to optimize their checkout. Because if you look at e-commerce brands, retail brands, they focused on skew availability, faster shipping times, better payment methods. They focused on how do I get more customers into my website? But where no one had really focused yet is really at the very end, which is checkout. And so we saw it as a massive opportunity because there was a there was two players in the space um, in the US that were doing it. But when I looked at their business models, I didn't agree with how either of them were operating. There's a lot of holes um, and, and how they were being run. And so I said, yeah, let's, let's go off and let's do this. So uh, yeah, where we are today, thousands of merchants on our platform, um, our one-click solution, which we just launched a few months ago, already has 600 retailers that are signed on to it. A few hundred of those are live and bringing them more and more live every day. Um, actually just launched Lenovo in South Asia, uh, which is really exciting. Um, uh, we have a few others as well, which are going live uh, very soon. So really excited to, uh, Get uh, get a few more of those live. Interesting, and you 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 know you talked about uh, checkout companies. Uh, you know, a couple of months back, Fast uh, was was a company which had attracted a lot of investments, uh, which were helping you know people uh, expedite online purchases, and it got shut down. You know, why do you think? Uh, you know, what what went wrong with Fast? Yeah, so the problem with Fast is, is that their business model did not work. So. Uh, in, in payment processing, right? Let, let's just take for the sake of math, uh, cost of, of acquiring a transaction online is roughly 2.1%, give or take. Uh, they were then covering charge, uh, frauds, chargebacks, and everything else like that, which really, was, let's just say for the sake of math, half a, uh, half a percent or 50 basis points, 50 bips, right? So that means your cost of processing is now minimum 2.6%. They were charging 2.9, so that means you have a margin of 30 basis points, which is one extremely slim. So by the time that you uh, by the time that you pay a referral partner or anything else, you're losing money, right? Yeah. And the other problem with, with that model as well, right, is that when you and what I've seen with how they operated was that when they went into the market, they started off as a checkout management platform, um, but. What they said was that you have to use our processing. 
So when you're going into big companies, you can't do that, right? Like they have these established relationships, five-year contracts usually um, with a major processor such as Fiserv or, um, you know, or FIS or really anybody else. You can't disrupt that, right? They have to maintain those contracts legally. And so what we viewed was is that they were requiring all these small consumers or small merchants, but then acting instead of a checkout management solution, they became a checkout button, right? So they were basically providing value. It was a good platform, by the way, from a, from a UI perspective, a consumer flow perspective was absolutely gorgeous. And I will say Fast did an amazing job of helping, you know, uh, you know kind of make, make the trails for everyone else in the market. Uh, they brought a lot of education in the market. Um, but at the end of the day, the economics just didn't work, right? And so for us, you know, we try to say as agnostic as possible. We have a ton of payment processors. We have three... Um, we have three cryptocurrency options available on the platform. We have most of the buy not pay later options available, um, not just in Pakistan and the U.S., but you know we have um, a lot of these companies right operate globally. Stripe's in twenty something countries. Klarna's in half, you know, almost a dozen countries, uh, and so we um, checkout.com is in a dozen countries. Right, so we we have all these integrated as our platform. So for us, as a live in the country, there's literally no difference. Right, it's those companies already operating there. We just simply pass a different currency, and you're live. And so we uh, just got an agreement with a major merchant that operates in nine countries. And for us, we did the uh, work estimate. Zero cost for us. Zero cost for us. But it's a purely borderless solution because all their payment options are uh, options that we already have integrated into the platform. Uh, so we're acting purely as a software as a service uh, platform. Connor, and uh, you know, uh, Jordan, you had also mentioned that you were onboarding a lot of retailers, especially in Pakistan and and US. What was the entire process of onboarding these retailers? Uh, was it mostly through cold calling or referencing? What what did really work for you when it comes to you know building that pipeline? Yeah, so um, in the US, we are you know a lot of cold calling, cold emailing. I have a fairly large. Uh, retail network as well. So I've been able to leverage that very successfully in getting uh, new merchants. Um, on the Pakistan side, you know, we are the largest player. Our next closest competitor has 8% of the market um, or 8% of the volume that we do. So like we are by far the largest. So we have a massive base there where um, I think this week so far, we've had 30 inbound leads just on one click. And that's not including any of the other business lines that we have. Um, that we have there as well. So uh, it varies market to market. Um, but, you know, uh, look, a lot of people ask, how do you get into Pakistan retailers in the very start? It was old school, cold calling, cold emailing, LinkedIn. Like there was nothing, no sort of fancy algorithm or Facebook ad strategy. It was just uh, kind of old school, uh, get out there and just do the work. Got it. Um, and, uh, you know, you, you moved back to, to Dallas uh, and you made it the headquarters. Why was that move done? And, you know, what's, what, what has been your learnings from working in a, you know, emerging market and then transferring that, uh, the learnings to us. Yeah. So when you look at where we were in Pakistan, we had a massive market share. Um, and we look at that, we said, Hey, like, you know, we're going to continue operating in Pakistan. We decided to work in the U.S. as well as a, as a, as a secondary, uh, as a second market. We said, I have, like, I had a, you know, I had to make a decision, right? Um, the reality is Pakistan is still a very large market for us. Um, we 
get thousands and thousands of sessions a day. We're a top ranked website, you know, there, uh, we have most of the major merchants in the, in the country. Um, and we have the only lending license for BNPL in the country as well. Um, what, what I had to make a decision on was where will I have to put more effort to be successful? Right. And the reality is that the U S is a brand new market for Kispay. So we had to put some focus there and look, the product is more mature in Pakistan and we have more consumers, more merchants. So it's just a much different scenario, right? It's, it's like anything else. If you, and we saw it with, we saw it with, uh, when I was at Klarna, um, they were in the, not many people know this, but they were in the U S market for years, right? Before they gave really any major traction when they did is when they started putting more focus into it. Right. But guess what? Sweden is still a massive market. They still own 80% of the volume there, right? So it's a very similar story to how, um, how we kind of evolved. And although, although Klein has been taking a, hitting in the, a hit in the news lately, if you look at it, there's still a $30 billion company, right? That is yeah. 10x in a few years. So there's a lot of naysayers out there of what they're doing. And look, I understand it's not the best time in the market to be in BNPL, especially for a company like that. But it's still a massive powerhouse. And they have their bank in Europe. They have traditional payment acquiring. They own SoFort, right? Which is a massive payment option in Germany, right? They're still a massive brand. And people, what I find is a lot of people get caught up in the news. And, and like, I get it. It's, I'm not saying there's not irrelevant points, right? I think there are some business model problems with how they've operated in, in their current market. But at the end of the day, they're still a massive organization with, you know, 6,000 plus employees. Um, so that's just the reality of the state of affairs at the moment. Got it. And, uh, you know, uh, you've been able to build a great brand in such a short time. Um, where do you think most people make uh, mistakes with their product product marketing and messaging about their brand? Yeah, I think as a founder, just in my scenario, right, going to a new country, one of the most frustrating things that I hear is, well, we don't do it like that. We're different here in Pakistan. It's not. Like, like I've, I've worked in multiple countries. I've done some work in Europe, now Pakistan. US, Canada, there's nuances to consumer mentality. But when you look at it, and I talk to other founders in LATAM and in other parts of Asia, it's all the same use cases. And at the end of the day, consumers and businesses want to grow their business. And if you're going to reduce friction out of the out of the cycle of doing anything, you're going to make more money, right? That's just the reality of it. So I think I think um, you know, I think that's one of the biggest learnings I could say is like, you'd be surprised how little difference there really is um, market to market. It's about reducing friction. If you can reduce friction or sell time back to people, right? That is ultimately what's going to make a business successful. Um, and that's all businesses, you're reducing friction, you're getting paid for the amount of friction that you reduce. Um, and that's what it boils down to. Mailman is a email assistant that shields you from unimportant emails, minimizing interruptions and making your days calmer and more productive. You can visit mailmanhq.com and use the code LSM, uh, which gives you the benefit of 15% off for the first year on the annual plan, uh, which already has 20% discounted compared to the monthly plan. So you can visit mailmanhq.com and use the code LSM. Very interesting. And, um, you know, you You've been able to hire a lot of lot of uh, hires in both Pakistan and and US. What's been uh, how's been your approach to hiring? You know, changed over the years, especially uh, when it comes to you know working about the countries. Yeah, so uh, you know, I think I'll give you two very stark differences um, between emerging markets and and developed markets. So in developed markets, 
you can go into a business line, typically unless you're like, you know, inventing a new technology like like Tesla, something very physically demanding like that. Um, if you're building a software as a service, there's typically people you can pull talent from, right? That's very easy to pull from. So for example, if I'm going to build a FinTech today, I can go to PayPal, I can go to Klarna, I can go to uh, Block, um, I can go to any of the neobanks. Like, there's a lot of talent and a lot of good resources and experience that I can pull from. There's a big startup ecosystem I can also pull from. In emerging markets, we were one of the first startups there. And there wasn't really anyone that knew FinTech, right? I think in terms of hiring, that's one of the most difficult things is it's not the raw like tech talent because there's a lot of good tech talent in emerging markets, um, especially web development specifics, yeah. right? Um, it's cool. really kind of all the other skills which are difficult. So for example, even tools, right? So we talk about tooling, uh, you go out and ask for a, mark, uh, a digital marketing person in the US. They have an understanding of Mixpanel, Braze, Iterable, uh, Tilium, all these, all these awesome tools. In emerging markets, you search for any of those terms, they don't exist in LinkedIn, right? So there's a lot of raw training that you have to do in order to get those people up to speed, not on their ability, but really more so the specific skill sets in which they work. Got it. And um, especially when it comes to executive hiring, you know, what, what are the two qualities uh, which makes uh, the best executives? And you know, what, what kind of questions do we uh, those executives? Yeah, I think um, as I've done this for a little while now, and uh, you know, some executives are here, some are not here. Some, you know, after letting some of them go, right? One of the things that I think the key focus is is two things. One, do they agree with your your vision and your energy? Um, so if you pull someone from a very from a very traditional working space and they aren't used to a startup type of environment, it's generally not a good fit. Um, the second thing is, is do they understand technology on the same level as you do or close to, right? Um, so for example, because someone's a great, you know, uh, you know, a great networker or a great, you know, operations person in a startup, right? You have to have a certain level of technology understanding. And it sounds really weird to say, because you think everyone knows how to use um, basic data tools and, you know, things other than email and the web. Uh, there's a lot of talent in emerging markets and in and, and developed markets that those people don't know how to use those tools, right? Um, and when you're working as a startup, they're not you know, managing operations for 300 people. They're managing operations for a team of five or 10 or 20 or 50, right? So that's a much different skill set. Um, it requires a lot more flexibility. Um, and I think that's something people should be aware about just because they had a big title at, at a major uh, organization does not necessarily mean they're going to be a good fit for your, uh, for your startup. For sure. And um, especially in a, in a fast-growing startup, how, how do you make sure that your team is, is able to take as much as risk as possible with everything that they do? Yeah, I mean, it's, you can't blame people for failing. Um, what I think you should... I usually kind of judge success or not success is one, did they put in the effort? Two, are they learning from their mistakes very quickly? And three, do you, when they don't complete something, whether it be on time or correctly, do they come to you and say, I was not able to do this on time. I'm telling you ahead of time. I think that's one of the biggest difference between a good employee and a bad employee, especially the startup. 
is not waiting until after the deadline to tell you, hey, I'm not able to complete this. And I think that's one of the things today that probably infuriates me more now versus maybe a year ago was like, if you can't, if I set this deadline, you agree to it, you can't do it, you need to tell me now, not after when that time is coming. Right. And so I think that's a very important thing that you should look out for. And, you know, if someone misses that too many times, a lot of times, no matter how good they are, you should let them go. You know, I always hear the higher, you know, the, 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 the old verbiage, higher, fast, fire, fast. And I think as CEO, and I've been doing this for, for a little bit over a year now, it's becoming more and more true uh, every single day. Interesting. And, uh, you, you know, what would you call is the single uh, driving metric for pay? And, you know, how, what advice would you give fathers to determine their North Star metric? Revenue. Revenue, especially in today's market, right? Um, you know, what we're ultimately looking at is revenue. Like, i give you an example. Um, one of the biggest, probably biggest complaints that we get, right, is you don't have it. Even though we have like three dozen alternative payment methods integrated into our platform, like you don't have this payment method. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to sign with you. Well, I look at their revenue, I'm like, well, you're going to bring me a hundred dollars a month in revenue. So I, I just can't prioritize that. Right. Um, kind of, it, it kind of goes back and you hear this a lot, right. And until you experience it, it's hard to say, but don't, you know, don't be afraid to say no. Don't be afraid to say no. It doesn't matter if it's a, a customer or an employee, if it's ultimately not driving revenue for the business, it doesn't matter. Right. And I had a conversation with a startup who recently got some funding um, and just today and these, you know, Hey, you're trying to find our fit. And my advice was focus on one vertical within a single platform. Don't DV outside of that. They, if they do, they better be driving a lot of revenue in order to make that successful. So I mean, one of the things that we started doing for a lot of, for a lot of the uh, uh, partnership integrations and merchant integration, we started charging an implementation fee, right? Why? Um, not necessarily because, uh, you know, it was a revenue driver, but it was a way to keep us focused from getting distracted from things that don't drive revenue. Because it's, it's, a, it's a dual partnership when you, when you get in bed with a vendor, right? Whether it be us or the other way around, you have that commitment on both sides. And if that one side isn't willing to commit time and money to that, then why should you, right? And yeah. some people are very, like, I got my first customer, it's great, but there's two, it's like a neo banking, right? There's two sides of driving revenue. It is consumer acquisition, consumer activation, right? And those are two very, very different things. Um, once you, and then activating the consumer, you still have to keep them coming back, right? So there's, there's two sides of that coin. And I think people, especially in early stage startups, are focused too much on vanity metrics. Uh, and I, I think that's a big mistake that people make um, uh, when working on their startup. So, super interesting. And, uh, you know, uh, we're all working uh, or have worked, you know, remotely, but what were, what were some of the important things that you did uh, when you were moved to a remote work environment, especially since you're based in the U.S., how do you, how do you manage with your employees based in Pakistan? Yeah, I mean, so we've um, been hybrid for quite a while. We still have an office in Pakistan. We have an office here in the U.S. Um, we have a hybrid work environment. Um, it comes down to results, right? I, I come from sales. I've led sales teams. Um, and so I, uh, when you lead sales, right, it's all about the numbers, right? I feel bad for, my, for the employees that work on the sales team in my company because I've heard every excuse in the book. There is no BSing around me, right? What does it come down to? Revenue that you're driving, right? 
if you sign the merchants and they're blocking revenue, I can identify that pretty easily. But I've heard every excuse in the book. Same thing with tech and marketing. Are you delivering on the things I've asked you to deliver on? Because you agree to them. I very rarely will say, you need to deliver this by this date. No questions asked. If you have a problem, tell me. Once again, it comes out of the communication. Um, but it's, become, it's becoming, you know, that's probably one of the hardest things, right? When you have a lot of passion for the company, right? And the people that you hire, sometimes having those hard conversations to say, look, you're not performing. I think it's best that, you know, you kind of part past here. It's, it's very difficult to have those conversations. But look, at the end of the day, a business is a business, right? And uh, it's, it's, hard, it's hard to have those conversations. But at the same time, you care a lot about those people on an individual level as well. But, um, you know, there's a, there's, you're just constantly learning. <laughs> when you do this business, you just learn at you kind of like 10 times the pace of everyone else. Uh, which is always uh, which is always fun. Got it. And uh, uh, you know what? What is what should be the right tone to communicate uh, to your team to both your losses as well as your wins, uh, especially your big losses. Yeah, I think the idea right is, and it sounds kind of weird, right? But when you're looking at a general statement, right? It's almost like this is startup life, right? It sounds weird, but like that. So like in a big business, right? you rise very slowly and you kind of, you know, go down very slowly. Yeah. Um, I think being from a sales background, I'm used to those crazy highs and those crazy lows. And we go one week signing five huge retailers and then the next three months you have nothing, right? And you have this like crazy roller coaster of emotions. And uh, it's that when, when you're talking to their employees, not everyone has that background or has that capability to handle those roller coaster of emotions. So you try to, I was not normalize it, but you try to make them realize like, look, just give them a heads up. Like this is startup life. Like there's going to be really good days, really, good, really bad days. Uh, there's going to be days where everything gets done and days where everything seems to get stuck. Um, so helping them realize that, hey, it's going to be fine, right? Um, and regardless of what happens, I'm going to prepare you for um, whatever's next, whether it be with this company, whether it be with the next company, or the company after that. But we're going to build something really cool together. Interesting. And... Uh, what do you think is the single biggest, uh, you know, hiring mistakes that founders make? I I haven't made this mistake, um, but I think one of the ones I see is hiring friends and family. I think is a very difficult thing. I, I think if you got the right relationship with that person, like for example, my friends and I are very brutally honest with each other. You'd think we'd be, you know, enemies at the end of the day, but that's just kind of how we are with each other. Um, but I, I see a lot of founders. Uh, hire friends and family, and it, 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 it can ruin relationships, right? And it, it is a very emotional toll in uh, time, but, uh, you know, but uh, yeah. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. I think friends and family can, can really backfire. Uh, and what's the a, what's a single biggest firing mistakes which executives make? Firing mistakes? Um, not firing fast enough. I think more than anything else, people let it trend out for too long. I, I did that in the very beginning of, of the company. I there's one or two people I just let sound for way too long, um, and then after you kind of and, it, and it's funny because I fired people in the past and I let them go. And it's it's always hard, by the way. Like it never gets really easy. But I think the the speed of which you come to that decision comes faster, right? The actual process of letting someone go is never enjoyable. Um, even, you know, to this day, I still have a hard time doing it, but it's, it's also the reality of, of, uh, where we're at, you know, that's, that's, that's the world. Got it. And, uh, do you think there are times when, you know, founders 
uh, if you look at uh, a feedback from a customer, should should you say no to a customer, or, or do you do you always lis- listen to the customer and make decisions based on what the customer wants? You should always listen to the customers, right? Um, making decisions based off that is a completely different scenario, right? So if one customer comes to me and says I'm having this issue and literally no one else is having it, it's, it's not that it's not relevant. It's not that they're not right. It's it's a matter of priority. Right? I've got a million other things I have to do first before I can even get down to that level, right? Um, but I think from a founding, from a founder perspective, if you see a common complaint, you should never say, well, that's just how it is. Right? That, that's a terrible mentality to take. It's, and it's really detrimental to startups, is that you say it's just the way it is, but why is it just that way? Right. And if it truly is just that way, is how do you improve the communication to help the customer understand why is it like that, right? So even if you can't solve the problem, helping them understand, I think that's really what builds a good product. As I think building good products has very to do with the product itself, right? If you look at all the best products, the functionality in and of itself is very, very simple. Like Uber, find the closest one, they accept it, they come pick me up, they drop me off where I need to be, they get paid you know, the trip, 80% of the trip. Very simple on the surface, right? Yeah. But think about all the communication layer that happens in between. How many the consumer understand what happened, why it happened. That's where building a product actually happens, right? Um, and I think that is coming into this, right? I always thought, hey, it's all about sales. You build a good product. You're off to the races, right? What I find myself doing most days is actually not selling. It's not building a product. Well, it's not building, it's not building a tool. It's building a product, right? It's how do I improve the communication for the consumer so they understand it better? When they understand it better, there is a better uh, acceptance of whatever you're doing, right? Um, it helps increase that retention rate, lowers the customer acquisition costs, and those other metrics you need to focus on. So I think founders don't take enough time. They focus too much on features and benefits rather than communication. Um, which is, uh, I, I think, a key thing for founders to focus on. Today, I have an interesting stat for you. Did you know that the founder of Beautiful Lives increased the social media presence by 10x? They managed to publish consistently and effortlessly using a robust social media management tool called Social Pilot. Social Pilot is a cost-effective social media tool that helps businesses scale their social media marketing efforts. Use lifestylemastery.com slash social pilot to get a 14-day free trial. Interesting, and uh, you know, you you uh, have raised funding from some great angels and VCs. Um, how should how should founder approach investor selection uh, when they're looking at and also for valuation for rounds? What what's been your thesis? Yeah, you need to start early. Um, I'm always fundraising. Um, yeah. And when I say fundraising, I'm not always like looking for funds, but I'm always having conversations like with VCs, and they're like, "Okay, it's been two months since I've chatted with you. Let's just have a conversation." Um, don't be afraid to get rejected. You're going to get rejected way more than you're accepted. And in terms of valuation, right, um, in the current market, valuations are kind of all over the place. I mean, there's some startups that are still raising. There's some startups that aren't raising at all. Um, so I think you're looking at valuation, uh, you know, be conservative, be realistic. Um, and, you know, I, I think you need to focus less on valuation, more on what can these funds do for me, right? So it not only needs to be the actual money, like how far can this get me, right? Um, and I think if founders focus more on those type of details, 
they would be more likely to get funding because when you go to a VC and say, I need this much money at this valuation, they're going to be like, look, I've got literally a hundred other startups that have approached me in the past 48 hours. So unless you're like, your metrics are just ridiculously through the roof on revenue, it's not going to matter, right? Um, to really focus on building a new communication product and driving that revenue up to get that multiple that you're looking for. Interesting. And I quickly want to do the top three. What's your favorite business book? Say that one more time. Yeah, what's your favorite business book? Ooh, uh, there is a book that I'm into right now called Product Hunt, which is really, really good. And it talks about the different types of founder, product founders, um, and how they view problems in the world and how they deconstruct them and reconstruct them into business solutions. I am also a huge fan of two, there's two other books. Um, so that's really around product. One is more like a general customer service, customer satisfaction type of book called Raving Fans. It's a really short book. You can read it like in a couple hours. And it's a really weird book. Like it talks about like a, a magical fairy, like solving business. It's the weirdest book I've ever read, but I read it right out of college um, when I worked at my first job out of college. And it like, it's still always stuck in my mind. And it talks about, you don't have to do 110% or 200% or 300% better. Just do 1% better. Right. And if you do that continually, it builds this massive traction. Um, and the last one is uh, 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 I'd say the challenger sale is really good. There's also spin selling. Um, there's some stuff from Miller Hyman, right? Like, so any of those sales methodologies, I think is really important. Even if you're not a salesperson um, and you're a technical co founder, understanding how an enterprise deal works, especially if you're on enterprise sales, right? Is understanding the mind. Uh, where, where the mind is for a business, for one of your uh, clients, or um, you know how they think or how decisions are made within large organizations. Yeah, uh, no, I think I think all of them are great books. I will put down in the show notes. Challenger sales is, is a special one because you know I'm part of the sales team, so I think uh, that's that's a popular one there. Uh, and you know, if you could go back in time when you started Kispay, what is the one thing you would have focused on or done anything differently? I think I would have focused more on customer communication. Um, I think, especially when we're develop, from a developed market uh, and going into an emerging market, you almost have this like uh, this mindset of if I do this, people just know it's common sense, right? And I think it happens a lot in the U.S. market and developed markets as well. But if you look, if you go into any login screen, like the example I love to give is the firm. You go into a firm's login screen, there are 13 or so call to actions and instructions on what's happening in the page or how to perform other various tasks that are tightly correlated to the function that you're trying to complete. Um, and I think it's a great example of like something that I wish I would have done earlier. I, I think most founders are get really excited about their product and focus on the features, which is important. Don't get me wrong, but I don't think you could ever put enough focus into communication. Um, I really think that. And I think no matter how good you are at it, you can always get better. Um, and I think even on my next startup, right? Uh, whatever that may be a couple of years down the road, right? It's, it's, I think that would be before I even write a line of code is I will have what emails are being triggered, what SMSs are being triggered. This is here, can a five-year-old understand what is on this without any other context? Um, and you know, I think a good example I always say is, is Hey, take this to take this to your to your grandparents 
great grandparents, the older person you can find say, here's a screen. What does this do? What are you supposed to do next? And if they can't answer it, then you need to work on your communication. Um, and I think that's something that, uh, you know, uh, one thing I was going to focus more on uh, uh, in the very early days. So, super, super interesting. And uh, what's your favorite online tools, example, Gmail, Slack, Zoom? Ooh, Kispay. Am I allowed to say that? Kispay? <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I think, um, to be honest, I, I think my favorite online tool is, uh, you know, YouTube Music. I know it sounds strange, um, but I, I think having the right music puts you in the right... I have different music for different things that I'm doing. Um, I love Slack. Don't get me wrong. Um, I love... Uh, there's a, a CRM tool that we're trialing right now, which is really looking really good. Um, but at the end of the day, I think this music, I, I think music or fun, whatever that tool is to help you get into the right state of mind for whatever you're about to do um, is, extre- is extremely important. Uh, whether it be a podcast, music, um, whether it be, you know, having uh, the right software, right? Um, for me, I have multiple mics. So just being comfortable at your desk is super important. Um, uh, I don't think the founders invest into good hardware. So I mean, I've got a nice headset, using a, uh, a good mic, good mouse, keyboard. Because I mean, I spend 12 hours a day typing on my mouse. So um, yeah, I think those, I, I think uh, Google Music or, or YouTube Music, whatever they call it now, is, uh, uh, is, is definitely my favorite piece of software. Absolutely. I think, I think YouTube is also one of my favorite. YouTube music uh, is also one of my favorite uh, tools. So we'll put down in the show notes. Uh, John, John what, what is the best way people can reach out to you and know more about this? Okay. Yeah, uh, reach out to me on LinkedIn. Oh, exactly. Connect. That's where most people can find me. I'm also on Twitter at uh, Jordan Fintech. Uh, and I just started getting into Twitter really like a week ago. Um, so I, I slowly the followers are gaining, um, which is pretty cool to see. But uh, yeah, reach out to me anyway any like that and uh, feel free to reach out to me. Um, always happy to have a conversation. Um, and uh, of course, if you're an e-commerce brand um, or a famous partner, would love to discuss uh, how we can work together. Absolutely. We'll put that in the show notes. Uh, Jordan, thank you so much for taking the time speaking to us. I really enjoyed my conversation with you. Great. Thank you so much for the time. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Life Self Mastery Podcast where we teach you how to start and grow your online business. For more information, visit Rohit's blog at www.lifeselfmastery.com.